Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let me pray. Lord, we come before you this morning and ask that you would work in us, that you would illumine our minds so that we understand your word and its truth, that you would soften our hearts so that we would receive it with repentance and joy. Lord, we need you. Um, We cannot live apart from you. We cannot grow apart from you. We certainly cannot be saved apart from you. And Lord, we ask that you would work in us this morning, that your spirit would be poured out powerfully on us as we study your word and understand what it means to be a son and to have the privilege to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we study prayer, and as we've been studying prayer, I pointed out that Jesus begins giving us a model for prayer that starts with an address to God. He wants to give us a model for prayer, and it starts out with this address in verse 9 of Matthew chapter 6. Our Father in heaven... And I walk through what it means that he's our father who's in heaven. But I want to continue um, that part about our father today. Last week, I mentioned that for him to be our father in heaven assumes something. It assumes that we're his children. It assumes that we're his children. I then discussed how Christmas is necessary to prayer because the coming of Christ is necessary to us becoming children of God. We're all children in the sense that we're offspring, in the sense that He created us. But when we sinned, we were separated from Him. And we were not children in the sense that we were co-heirs with Christ, those who would inherit the kingdom, those who have a father-son relationship with God. We were not those sorts of children. Only those, only those who are in Christ are those kinds of children. And I talked about that last week. I talked about the fact that Christ had to come and live and die in our place so that we could be reconciled to God. And the Bible uses the word adopted as sons. In other words, because of sin, the only natural son of God is Jesus. Everyone else is adopted as a son. And some of you might say, well, wait a minute. What about adopted as a daughter? Yes. 
But the Bible tends to use the terminology adopted as a son. That's a gender-inclusive term. In other words, both women and men are adopted as sons in that sense. But obviously God understands you're women, so don't worry. But he does talk about it in that sense. So we're adopted as sons, adopted as the children of God. Why do we have to be adopted? Because we are not naturally his sons. We're not naturally his children because of sin. Instead, we are naturally, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, we are by nature children of wrath. According to Jesus in John chapter 8, we are by nature children of the devil. Which is why Thomas Watson, an English Puritan, said several hundred years ago that when we pray, he's talking about the Lord's Prayer, when we pray, it is only believers who can rightfully pray our Father who's in heaven. Because unbelievers, while they would never pray this way, can only rightfully pray our Father who's in hell. That's a strong statement, isn't it? And it has to do with adoption. It has to do with the fact that naturally we are not sons of God and it is only only through faith in Christ that we are adopted as sons and have a right to even address Him as our Father in heaven. The question becomes, how do you know if you're an adopted son or not? How do you know if you've been adopted as a child of God? I mean, there are lots of people. In fact, I think in America, it's over 80% of people in the U.S. claim or profess to be Christians, don't they? Now, I don't know about you all, but it's not looking that way to me. I'm doubting very seriously that over 80% of the people in the United States are actual followers of Jesus Christ. So, many of us profess. How do you know if you're really of the faith or not? How do you know if your profession is true? The Bible gives you an answer to that question. The Bible actually provides a whole book. The Father has seen fit to teach us as His children or to provide us with tests as His children to know if we're an adopted son. It's seen fit to give us tests. You might say He's provided us with some character traits of those who belong to the family. Uh, I'll, I'll picture it this way. I have a son. If you know my son, um, Jared, you know by looking at him that he looks like his dad. He looks a ton like his dad. But that's not the only character trait that he has like his dad. He also talks a lot, a lot like his dad. I hear my wife sometimes you know, saying what I remember hearing my mom say. Why you ever stop asking questions? Could you ever stop talking? And as soon as I hear her doing that, I go, I remember my mom asking me that same question when I was in the backseat of the car usually. But character traits, he's a lot like me. He has character traits of his father. And the expectation is that when we're adopted as sons and we're in Christ and Christ's spirit indwells us, we will have character traits like our Father. We will bear His image rightly. That's the work that the Spirit of God does in us upon salvation. He works in us and we bear His character traits. So what are those? Well, there's a whole epistle written by John, one of the apostles of Christ. He wrote an entire epistle 
that it might be argued as written for the very purpose of telling us what the character traits of a believer are, what a real child of the family of God looks like, what's a picture of a son. So turn with me to 1 John, because I want to show you how John provides tests of true faith or character traits of true children. And I'm going to provide you with five character traits. Five character traits of a true child. Now, there are, I could probably pull out more in First John, but as I surveyed it and went through it, I landed on five, and uh, I want to go over those with you. Now, I want to tell you something about this. If you are a person who's listening to these, and you're a believer, if you're a particularly guilt-ridden believer, you will start to question So let me give you this piece of advice. Ask other people around you. If you're excessively introspective and always think that you miss the mark and you're always dwelling on it, ask other believers around you, do you see these things in my life and trust their judgment? Trust their judgment. If you're like me, if you're an overly confident sort of believer who's sure these things are true of you, then... Ask other people around you (laughs) and make sure you guys get where I'm going with that. But I will say this. If you're a believer, as you apply these tests, as you understand them, and as you ask the body of Christ if these are true of you, these will give you confidence that your faith is real. It's John's purpose. John did not write this epistle to convince you that you have false faith. He wrote this epistle to give confidence to believers that they have true faith. In fact, if you want to see his purpose, look at 1 John chapter 5 really quickly. 1 John chapter 5. And look at verse 13. 1 John chapter 5 verse 13. I write these things. Here's his purpose for the letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may what? Know that you have eternal life. It's his purpose. I want you to know. I want to provide you with some tests so you don't spin all around all the time wondering, am I a false professor or is this real? Do I see the character of my father growing in me as a son in the way that John puts it here? And if I do, that gives me assurance, that gives me confidence that my faith is true. And if I don't, here's what I'm going to tell you. If you do not see this These tests, if you do not see that you're passing them, i.e., if you do not see the character of your father developing in you, if you don't see it, then this book should scare you. It should cause you to wonder, am I professing truly or am I phony? Because the Spirit of God indwells every believer and it changes them to look increasingly like their father. And so it is guaranteed. I'm not telling you when I read this that I have five things I want you to do. You hear that? I'm telling you five things I want you to do. What I'm telling you is these are five tests that you can check yourself by because it's guaranteed. Not that you don't have to work at it, but it's guaranteed that if you're a believer, you're growing in these. These things are being grown in you by the power of the Spirit. It's guaranteed. So let's look at them. There are five things. First, we have the same view of our sin 
that the Father does. This is the first one. And like I said, I'll put these all up on my blog, um, and you can get there through our website so you know what they are, so you have to write them all down. But the first one is we have the same view of our sin that our Father does. In other words, if we're a child, we are going to see our sin the same way that our Father does. First John chapter 1, look at verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Here's the thing. The false professor of faith does not recognize. The false professor of faith does not recognize his sin. He does not confess it and he does not repent of it. He sees his sin differently than his father sees his sin. He sees it often as someone else's fault, possibly. It's their fault. They made me do that. I wouldn't have gotten angry if my spouse hadn't have done this. It's always someone else's fault that I have this sin. The second thing they might do is they might just see the sin as really minor. It's not a big deal. Don't make such a big issue out of it. Or they might actually just go ahead and say, you know what, my sin is enjoyable. I like doing these things and I don't want to give it up. Yes, I'm a believer. And yes, I rejoice in my sin. What? No. A believer may enjoy the sin while they're in it, but man, they feel some deep, deep guilt and regret as a result of it. They don't ever continuously rejoice in it. He continues in his sin, the false professor, and fails to recognize his deep need for forgiveness. He doesn't recognize his sin and repent and confess it. He doesn't look to God for forgiveness. He knows the facts about the gospel and intellectually agrees with them. In other words, you could come up to this person and say, do you believe that Jesus was the Son of God? Yeah. Do you believe he lived a perfect, sinless life? Yeah. Do you believe all the Bible says about him? Yes, I do. Do you believe he died on the cross for our sins? Yep. Do you believe he rose from the dead? Yep. Do you believe there's heaven and hell? And if you're in Christ, if you believe in him through faith, you're going to heaven. And if you don't, you're going to hell? Yes. Okay. Do you think you're a sinner and you need to repent and confess and turn to him and hope in him only and walk after him? No, not really. You don't have those conversations with people. Some people are honest enough to admit it. Some are not. I had unbelievers who I know last week. I know they're unbelievers. Some of these people tell me they're unbelievers who came up to me after a sermon and very clearly told me, that they were glad that I made it so clear that there's one way that you're either in Christ or you're going to hell. 
but they don't believe. That happens. Sadly, the American church has convinced them that faith is intellectual agreement. If I think the facts are true, then I'm a believer and so I'm saved. It's not true. That isn't true. Real faith, true faith, issues in a changed life. It works itself out. Repentance comes on the heels of real faith. Right out of it. 1 John 5, 6, look at what he says. 1, 5, and 6. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light speaks of God's moral purity. There's no sin in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, in other words, if we say he's our father and we have fellowship with him, this morally pure, no sin in him at all, God, we have fellowship with him. I have a relationship with him. We commune together. He's my father. I'm his son. If we say we're that person, while, somebody says, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Hear that? Yes, he's my father. Yes, I'm his son. I profess to believe in him. We have a relationship, God and I. Really? Well, how come you continually walk in sin? Not how come you occasionally fall into sin. How come instead your life by walking means is characterized by sinfulness? Is characterized by a lack of humility in recognizing your sin and repenting. How come? How come that's your life? If that's how your life is characterized, if people say of you, not, you know what? His life is characterized as someone who is humble, recognizes his sin, confesses, repents. Not his life is characterized as someone who's perfect. But his life is characterized as someone who recognizes his sin, repents of it, tries to walk the right way. You have assurance that you have fellowship with the Father. That's, that's a test of assurance. If your life, however, is characterized as someone who says they believe but refuses to repent, refuses to confess their sin, refuses to acknowledge where they are, and wants to walk their own way all the time, and what everybody's report about you is that you have no change, you continue to walk in that way, you don't have much confidence or assurance that your faith is real. You understand the distinction there? I'm not making this absolute. If you ever sin, you're not a believer. I can't be saying that because look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you. These are believers. So that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. There's an assumption that you will sin, but He doesn't want you to sin. And your life shouldn't be patterned as one who walks after sin, but of someone who is repentant. He gives a contrast in one seven. Look at verse 7 of chapter 1. If we walk in the light, there's the person who walks in the darkness but claims to have a relationship with Christ. Then verse 7, but if we walk in the light, if we walk after moral purity, as He is in the light, 
We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Look at verse 8 now, because unbelievers fail to recognize their condition. He just makes these contrasts back and forth. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The believer never says he has no sin, right? The believer never says his sin isn't that consequential or egregious or someone else's fault. The believer recognizes his sin and confesses it. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins. That word in the Greek is homologeo. Now that sounds really helpful to you, I know. But let me break that down. Legeo is, or lego is the word to say. Homo is the word same. What he's saying here is, when he says confess, saying, if we say the same thing as who? As God. If we say the same thing about our sin, that's confession. To confess my sin is to say the same thing about my sin that God says about it. That the Father says about it. A real believer says of our sin what the Father says of our sin. That it is sinful. That it is offensive to Him. That it needs to be confessed and repented of. And if we do, what does it say? If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The true believer is characterized as someone is not I should say this, is not characterized as someone who never sins. The true believer is characterized as someone who recognizes their sin, confesses it, and repents. The true believer confesses or says the same thing. The false professor does not. Look at verse ten. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Do you hear the contrast John's making? So the first test is, do you say the same thing about your sin and confess and repent that the Father does? If you do, you're a child. If you do not, your profession is a lie. The first comparison isn't. If you're perfectly righteous and never sin, you're a child. And if you're not, your profession's a lie. The first test is do you say the same thing about your sin your father does? Do you recognize it, confess it, and repent of it? If so, you're a child. Second test, we have the same view of Christ that the father does. Don't just have the same view of our sin the father does, the same view of Christ the father does. Look at 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to try to move through these tests a little more quickly here. 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That means you're a son, right? Everyone and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. It's a second test there. But if we're truly adopted as sons, if we've been born again into the family of God, then we embrace the truth about who Jesus is. We don't simply participate in some vague religious commitment to Jesus. We've received Him. We believe. And we wholeheartedly trust in Him 
as he is declared in Scripture. Now, many people say they believe in Jesus Christ, but they deny the biblical picture of him. This Jesus that they profess is not saving. Any Jesus other than the Jesus professed in Scripture is not a saving Jesus. He's an idol. No matter how sincerely the people believe in him, he's an idol because he's not the God of the Bible. That's why Mormonism, in their profession that Jesus is the brother of Satan and of us, that Jesus is an offspring of Father God and Mary from the planet Kolob, true story, okay, They were up there producing spirit babies. Jesus was the first. Lucifer was the second. All of us came later. And that they produce human bodies here on earth as bodies for those spirit babies so they can come. And there was an election and Jesus won the election and Satan lost. And that's why Jesus is a savior and Satan is a demon, right, who terrorizes us. Um, And that all the people who were black, by the way, or dark-skinned voted for Satan. That actually was their original teaching. That Jesus is not the God of the Bible. It's a false Jesus. They can call themselves a church of Jesus Christ all they want, but it's false. Some of them are wonderful people. Some of them, like some of us, are not so wonderful, but some of them are wonderful people, and we should pursue them with the gospel because they don't know the Jesus of the Bible. Same thing with Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus is not Michael the Archangel in flesh. He's not a God little g. He is the God of the Bible. It's not enough to believe in some Jesus Christ principle. It is the person of Jesus Christ as presented in Scripture who saves. We need to understand the context of 1 John 5, 1 though. John has been writing and in 1 John 4 he's been talking about how you, the fact that there's a battle with false teachers going on in the church. People who are making up false ideas of Jesus. And he gives us a little context as to what he means by professing Jesus or believing that Jesus is the Christ. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Here's how you know. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess, and this could probably be inserted here, does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is not from God. Here's the point. If you believe, if the teacher of the Bible is talking about the fact that this Jesus is the Son of God who has come in the flesh as a human that you can touch and feel. That person is talking about the true Jesus. He believes in Jesus as God and Jesus as man. John is combating a group of um, people who were just beginning to get some steam called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics were saying that Jesus didn't have a physical body. He just appeared to. It also can be referred to as docet, uh, being a docetic, which means you, you believe that he just appeared to have a physical body. But the idea is that Jesus didn't really have one. It just appeared like that. 
He wasn't really a man. John combats them right off the get-go at 1 John chapter 1 when he says, starts talking about how we felt, you know, his wounds and we touched him and he's, he's real. He's a man. And what John is saying is that if people come around teaching a false Christ, a Christ that is not fully man, their doctrines to be rejected. And he goes on, actually, and says that not only does he need to be fully man, he needs to be fully God. Look at verse 15 of chapter 4. He says this, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he's given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Now verse 15, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. In other words, not only... Not only do you have to believe Jesus is man, but you have to believe Jesus is God and that he's the savior of all people. You have to confess the right Christ if you're a children, child of God. Now, someone might come, people have come and asked me this. Well, what about the Mormon or the Jehovah's Witness or the person who doesn't know? They believe in Jesus. They profess him in faith. They think they're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Are they saved? Well, first of all, I don't know. I don't know the answer to the question. It depends on the Christ they're trusting in. It depends on who the Jesus is they're trusting in. It's entirely possible that they're trusting in the same Jesus that you or I are trusting in, and they don't know the doctrine of their church. They don't know what it is. And that when you teach them the truth of the Scripture, they repent of the doctrine of their church and they move into the truth. It's entirely possible. I've seen people do that before. I've had friends in cults that I've talked to that I, that I think were believers. In fact, one who was a teacher's aide of mine when I was teaching at South High, who I, I know she was a believer, but she was believing in the wrong Jesus. And I walked through the scripture of who the right Jesus is. You know what she did? She left that cult and kept walking with Jesus because she was believing in the right Jesus. She just didn't know fully who he was. That can't happen. The thief on the cross... Do you think he knew everything about the divinity and humanity of Jesus? And all? Of course not. He was looking at the right Jesus and trusting in him. What we can be confident of because of Jesus' word, to, words, today you'll be with me in paradise, what we'll be confident of is that man was a real believer who was indwelt by the Spirit, and had he lived beyond that day, and had he been instructed about who Jesus is, he would believe what the Word of God says. That's the character of a true child. Someone who believes the Scripture's testimony about who Jesus is. Third, we have the same view of the law that the Father does. The same view of the law that the Father does. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. By the law, I mean the Ten Commandments, essentially. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And by this, listen to what John says, by this we know that we've come to know Him. How do you know you've come to know Christ? If we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. You guys just hear that? That's pretty strong, isn't it? Whoever says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth of God is not in him. True sons recognize that God's commandments are holy and righteous and good because they recognize that God's commandments are from God and they reflect his character. 
They want to follow the will of their father because they believe that their father is good and their father gives them good commands. We want to abide by them. Our lives are characterized as those who strive to keep his law. When, a be- when someone becomes a believer, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that they become a new creation. They're changed. The Spirit's indwelling them. The Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. He's one with the Father. Guess what he wants to do? He wants to work the character of God out in you. And he gives you a desire, according to Jeremiah chapter 33. He gives you a desire to keep the law. Writes it on your heart. So you desire to keep it. That characterizes a true believer. Paul isn't saying, excuse me, I'm sorry. John isn't saying here in 1 John. He's not saying, if you ever violate a commandment, you're not a son. It's not what he's saying. Or else he would be contradicting himself in verse 9, wouldn't he? chapter 1, when he says if we confess our sins, and he would be contradicting himself in chapter one, or verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 2, where he says, but if you do sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ with the Father, you know, Jesus Christ. He's not saying if you ever break a commandment, you're not a son. What he's saying is that your life is characterized by someone who thinks God's law is good and who strives to keep it. And if your, law, your life is characterized as someone who wants to go their own way and do their own thing and pursue their own life and who thinks the law is cumbersome and oppressive and not as fun as what I can come up with for my life, that in some way God is trying to you know, squash me down, if that's your view of the law, you're probably not a son. In fact, what, Paul's, or excuse me, what John says is that's your view of the law, you're not a son. If you don't want to keep God's law, but you want to walk in your own way, you're not a son. You're not a child. You lie. The truth is not in you. It's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? But if you're someone, if you're someone whose life is characterized by thinking the law is good, by desiring to keep it, even though you fail, and when you fail, recognizing your sin and professing it, confessing it to God and saying, I'm a sinner and repenting and then trying to get up and walk by the law again. If you're that person, you have assurance that you're a child of God. Hear that? If you're the person who recognizes your sin, if you're the person who believes in the Jesus Christ of the Bible, if you're the person who wants to keep the law even though you fail, you have assurance that you're a child. If you're, if you're a person, however, who denies that you're that big a sinner, who doesn't think it's that big a deal, who denies the Christ of the Bible, who thinks that the law is there to, to keep you from the fun you want and so you're, you don't care about it, if you're that person, then your profession is a lie. That's what John's saying. Number four. Number four. We have the same view of the world that the Father does. The world the Father does. Look at 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's pretty strong, isn't it? 
For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world, in John's word use here, does not refer to nature or doesn't refer to our physical earth. It refers to this world's system as set up and controlled by Satan. That's what it refers to. In fact, he defines what the world looks like. Look, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Look at verse 16. For all that is in the world. Now, here's the definition that he's giving of the world by what he means of the world. The desires of the flesh. That's the inordinate desires of the flesh, for example. Is it wrong for your flesh, for you physically, to desire to be in a sexual relationship? No. That's not wrong. Is it wrong if your desire is inordinate to the extent that you pervert what God intends for that natural desire so that I desire to have sex, but I'm not going to wait till I'm married? Or even if I'm in marriage, I'm going to pervert it still through all kinds of lust and pursuits, etc. You guys know what I'm talking about there? Okay. He also talks about, and that's not the only desire of the flesh. I'm just picking that one out. He also talks about it's the pride of possessions, right? The desire of the eyes. He's referring to this idea of lusting, coveting, pursuing what your flesh wants. I love the world. I love to gratify my flesh. That person is not a son. I will recklessly abandon the law of God, the truth of God, the character of God, my walk with God, so that I can pursue the desires of my flesh, so that I can accumulate wealth, and have pride in my possessions so that I can covet what my neighbors have, um, so that I can covet what my coworkers have, so that I can pursue what feels good to me. I love the world and all that it has to offer. That is the testimony of an unbeliever. Now, does your flesh ever cry out, that looks good? As a believer, of course it does. Of course it does. Paul says you're a new creation, but he also says that this body of sin hasn't been done away with yet. And he cries out in Romans chapter 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? Right? Why? Because this old body of sin is still around and this flesh still cries out for the things of the world. Yes, I want to watch that. Yes, I want to go to that place. Yes, I want to be with that woman. Yes, I want... Yes, I want... And your flesh keeps crying out. What a real believer does is he hates that about himself. He doesn't rejoice in that. He feels that desire. And then he recognizes that's wrong. I can't love that. I can't pursue that. In fact, I hate that I feel that way. That's what Paul or John's talking about here. So used to Romans now. That's what John is talking about here. I hate that I feel this way. I hate the world and what it holds out to me and what it entices me to do. I hate that. The world system looks good. It lures us with its power and wealth and its pursuit of personal pleasure. 
However, if we love the world, we love it. Unrepentantly rejoice in it. And the love of the Father is not in us. The world may entice us, but as children of God, we're more interested in our Father's kingdom. 1 John 5, 4 says this, For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The world may try to compel us to abandon our Father for its, tempta- for its treasures, and its temptations are strong. But if we're God's children, we've overcome the world. Our battle victories over the world's allure may be small at first, but they are there nonetheless. The victories might be over small battles, getting a hold on your tongue so you don't cuss so much, right? Not watching that show anymore that you know is inappropriate. Might be a small victory, but it's a victory nonetheless, and the victories continue to grow. Number five, we have the same view of the church that the Father does. Same view of the church the Father does. This is the last characteristic. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. The one another here is talking about the church. Beloved is those who are loved by God, speaking of believers specifically. Let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God And knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, mind you, this doesn't say love is God. Okay? Don't worship love. God is love. It's speaking of the character of God. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation. That's the satisfaction of God's wrath is what propitiation means. For our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Hear that? What John, when John is saying to love one another, he's talking about those in the church. And what he's saying is the father loves the church. The father loves the church so much that he sent his son to die for the church. He loves his people so much that he sent his son to die for them. If God so loved us that he'd give his son for us, then we also ought to love one another. That is a character trait of our father that is birthed in his children by his spirit through faith. When God works in us, one of the character traits of a child of the father is that we love the brothers, the sisters, the church. He desires to meet with, this is what a believer looks like, he desires to meet with and care for and be patient with and serve and sacrifice for his brothers in Christ. Look at what John says about this, in fact, in in chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, it means if anyone has wealth, money, and he sees his brother in need, 
yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I I used to think about this text as a guy who sees the person with the family broke down on the side of the road, you know, and, and it's cold outside and the tire's flat and you realize you could help in some way. And they roll down the window and drive by and say, we love you and we're praying for someone to come help you. Right? What's the point there? It's all word. It's all talk. Who cares? If you're not going to act on it, it's not love. Love takes action. Sacrificial sort of action. It doesn't just talk. Wives know this. When their husbands say, I love you, but refuse to get off of their backsides. Wife thinks, oh yeah, sure you do. That's pretty loving right there. Right? You could say, I love the church, but I refuse to do anything for anyone in the church ever. I've got to spend my time on me. You don't love them. And I'll tell you, it's easy to do things for other believers when there are things you like to do. But what happens when another believer is in need in some way that you don't want to have to meet that need? Then we'll find out if you really love the brother, won't we? Because will you serve that sister or brother in Christ when it's some sort of service you don't like? You know? Will you do it? Then you find out if the love of the Father is in you or not. You might say, sometimes I fail at that. Yeah. The question isn't, do you occasionally fail at it? The question is, do you see a desire growing in your heart to love people? And do you see that starting to show up in your life? That's the question. And if you do, you've passed the test in that sense. You can have assurance. And if you don't, if you just care about you, you're not born of God. Do you have the same view of sin that your father does and thus confess and turn from it? Do you have the same view of Jesus that the father does and thus trust in him alone as your only hope of salvation? Do you have the same view of the law as the father does and thus strive to keep it because it's holy and righteous and good? Do you have the same view of the world as the father does and thus increasingly flee from it while pursuing the father's kingdom? Do you have the same view of the church as the Father does and thus increasingly cultivate and demonstrate your love for the brothers through prayer and service and sacrifice? See, these are the tests. If you could say, yes, I can certainly grow more, but I see these character traits growing in my life, then you have assurance of salvation and you can confidently address God as Father. In fact, if these are truly growing in your life, then you have and will experience God's Spirit working in you and teaching you to cry out to your Father, Dad. It'll happen. However, if you're not experiencing growth and change in these areas, then you need to understand that mere intellectual agreement with the facts of the gospel does not a son of God make. 
You must call on God to radically change you, turn to him in faith, and turn away from your sins. That's what you got to do. I've got 20 things I'm going to post on my blog because I don't have time to go over them. But they're benefits of being a child of the Father. And I wish I had time to go over them, but I don't. So I'm going to post them on my blog, and you can turn there um, during this week and look at them because they're, they're incredibly, incredibly encouraging. Um, but I don't have time to get to them. So I, I may just bring them back in here next week. Um, let me uh, pray and, and close. Lord, we thank you um, just for your word and its truth. We pray for those, Lord, who are um, believers here, that they would cry out to you as their father, that they would be assured of their salvation, the salvation that you work in them, um, that you've worked in them, that they would be assured of it through these tests, that they would see your work in them and know that they're of the faith. And Lord, for those who are professing to be of the faith, Lord, but who don't really know you, I pray that you would work in them. They would repent this morning and turn to you in faith, recognize you as their Lord, and rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take.